This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. I want to say thank you to everyone who tunes in and listens, the ever-growing audience, which is apparently from the emails scattered about the world, one village, one heart. Hey, I appreciate you writing in. I do write everyone back, so don't hesitate if you have a comment or you want to share your story, or sometimes we've gotten some great guests through the uh, listeners, or the listeners themselves happen to be a guest of note. Today, I have a wonderful show for you. I love sociology. I've always been an amateur sociologist. And today, we have a real sociologist on who co-wrote a really intriguing book called Dreams of a Lifetime, How Who We Are Shapes How We Imagine Our Future. And she makes a compelling argument with her co-author. It's an honor and joy to welcome to the family, Ms. Karen Cerullo. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Paul. How did you get into sociology? I've always wondered how someone becomes a sociologist. Well, it's funny. Uh, when I first went to college, I thought I was going to be a psychologist. And uh, then taking courses in psychology and taking courses at sociology at the same time, uh, I just changed my mind and uh, have been with sociology ever since, probably my sophomore, junior year in college. And what is it for the uninitiated who, who confuse it with anthropology or the social sciences? I think sociologists are looking for patterns. So psychologists might be able to talk with you and tell you what you're likely to do in a given situation or context. But a sociologist is going to tell you what are most people likely to do or what are most people thinking. We can't predict for the individual, but we can talk about these large scale patterns that uh, as they persist or change, and what's likely uh, to be the direction that groups and communities take. Mm, well said. So a book like Bowling Alone. Yeah, I think a very much a sociological excursion in that someone is looking at historical changes in the way we relate to one another and showing how that affects a trend from community orientation to individualism. So again, you know, Bob Putnam couldn't say that's going to happen to you, but he can say this is how it looks from the big picture. Any big trends you see now in our culture in terms of vision, the way social media has played into this? This is not the kind of cultural landscape i remember even back in the 70s and 80s it seems so different and it's moving in a very interesting direction that would be a kind of a neutral word but it is something's afoot what's your take i know that's a very broad question but i'm sure you've thought about this well you know i think a few things here it's funny when the the internet started to be used fairly widely i was very very excited about it because it was being used for a lot of pro-social things. I think what's happened now instead with the proliferation of social media is that every voice um, that wants to be heard can be heard. And as a result, what's happening is that we're getting a lot of conflict that's now public and bubbling on the surface. And um, it's created a real bifurcated society where people are in camps and tribes. And I think social media has 
a lot to do with it. Uh, I, I really hope that we can get people who are uh, interested in the pro-social side of social media to try to create some sites that might balance out some of the sites where we just see people engaged in rage, really, against, uh, against one another. Um, certainly another trend that I've been thinking a lot about is the move toward working from home and what that means for how we conceive of community. Um, the Zoom effect does not appear to be reversing itself. In fact, people are clinging onto it. And it, it is going to be interesting. You know, I know many people who um, friends are not close by and so forth, that Zoom has really been a blessing. And they'll tell me, and this is true in, in many cases in my own life, that I see people that have been longtime friends more frequently via Zoom than I can see them in person. On the other hand, there is that uh, in-person connection in the workplace, in social gatherings um, that is diminishing. And it's going to be interesting to see just what the long-term effects of that are. And we are definitely communal creatures who our immune systems thrive, our minds, when we're in person, when we get touched, when we hug, when we make eye contact. And you can't, you can't really replace that with computers and technology. Not yet. <laughs> Unless you get a robot dog with a gun on it. Yes, we're seeing, uh, I, I'm, I'm reading all about the, the AI research uh, that is uh, sort of going on behind the scenes here and creating human-like robots. Uh, interesting research, for example, about you know collecting people's messages and voices from the internet. And you can then recreate someone in your family who's who's uh, deceased, either creating voice messages from them, having them read books to your children, and uh, actually creating lifelike robots that will be have brains that are filled with data about them. Um, so it's fascinating and yet very scary. <laughs> Sounds like that show, The Black Mirror, that I literally had to stop watching because it was freaking me out. And it was like five years ago. And then now every part of it's coming true. Yes, they had an episode about a lifelike robot, which I have now discovered research about creating something like that has been going on. Yeah, where this the, the boyfriend's killed in a car crash and then she orders the duplicate and how it's really freaky. And then the robot dogs that just were killing everything and people were committing suicide. Yes. Luckily, I'm old enough where I think I've had a good enough run where I hopefully will, the robot dog gets me or if I just exit, I, I kind of got out of Dodge right before the volcano kind of erupted. <laughs> yeah. In this book, you know, when the time, when it first came, I was thinking the dream life when we sleep. But this is more about aspirations. Can you uh, can you kind of do the nuance on that and what the dreams of a lifetime means in this case? Yes. Yes, we're definitely not talking about the dreams you have when you're asleep. And we're not necessarily talking about things like your career aspirations or your hopes, because as we note in the book, those things are generally grounded in reality. Um, you know, we, we have stories about uh, my mother-in-law, for example, who uh, always wanted to be a lounge singer. Well, if that was really uh, something that um, she was going to pursue, you know, she would have been doing things like uh, taking voice lessons and going to open mic nights and trying to get booked into nearby venues. Um, but 
No, it really wasn't truly an aspiration. It was a dream. And it's something that's in the privacy of your mind that you have always wanted to do or something you've always wanted to be, uh, something you've always wanted to have. The likelihood is that you're never really going to pursue it. Uh, you're never really going to create a plan, but it's something that is a doorway into the essence of who you are. It's telling us something about where we want to belong, where we feel we should belong, where we would like to be in life if there were no obstacles in our way, if real life didn't get in our way. So it's something that really gives us some insight into what the core of a person's identity uh, really is. Is it a form of escapism too? Like, you know, remember Norma Ray and her coffee breaks when she was in the union factories or the way people kind of, it's a chance to check out. It's almost healthy at times and just have these daydreams, nightdreams, fantasies that propel us out of a difficult moment. Uh, you know, we talked to a number of people who said that when they had a bad day or when something terrible happened to them, that was one of the times when they would like to think about their dreams. Um, and the dreams can comfort them. Uh, the dreams can excite them. The dreams can propel them to doing something in the real world that's not exactly what they're dreaming about, but might be related to their their strengths and their skills. Um, it's, you know, I think we all at certain times of the day or week go to those places. I know, you know, myself, I think about, oh, what would it be like to write a Broadway play, maybe even star in it? What would it be like to front a rock band? Uh, what would it be like to own a nice little flower shop in my town and have all of those town residents come in and uh, have people that I would get to know. Um, I haven't done any of those things. Likely, I'm not going to do any of those things. But they're things that I think reflect something about myself that I like to take out and examine now and then. And what you did so br brilliantly in the book with Janet is you showed how the culture influences the scope of these dreams. That's right. You know, we Generally, we talk to people in interviews and in focus groups, but we also collected a lot of data about what the messages are out there. What are the cultural lessons that we're being taught about dreams? And we found that there's many, many positive lessons. You know, you can be uh, taught that um, uh, no matter what, you should dream big. Uh, you can be uh, taught that... Um, you know, optimism is important and you have to think and dream optimistically. Um, you can be taught that no matter, uh, you just have to work hard and your dreams are going to come true. You know, that's the great Jiminy Cricket song, When You Wish Upon a Star. Um, but there are some negative lessons too. The idea that the deck is stacked against certain people and dreams will never come true or that it's risky to dream because if you go too far, too fast, you're going to crash land. And we found that which of those lessons people embraced was very much tied to what we talk about as social location, meaning your social class background, your race, your gender, what are the uh, life events you're facing at the time, and where you are in the lifespan. And you know, because you look at numbers, social mobility has dramatically decreased in the last 40, 50 years. It has dramatically decreased. And um, 
Of course, uh, people who are in their 20s and 30s are also facing an enormous amount of debt from, uh, you know, investing in college educations and so forth. Um, so uh, teaching positive lessons about dreams can be uh, a, a good thing, but it's a double-edged sword. You know, a few years ago, I wrote a book about uh, being unable to anticipate or even envision worst case scenarios, a book called Never Saw It Coming. And, you know, that book talked about how even people who are trained to envision worst case scenarios can't. And often it's because we are so submerged in this culture of optimism that is not only a part of the United States, though it's especially strong here, but is prevalent in many Western European countries. So we have to look at both sides of dreaming. Um, dreaming requires, if you really want to make a dream come true, it requires a lot of planning. And uh, it's, it's not just something uh, as that book, The Secret, promoted many years ago. You know, if you think it, it will happen. Um, that kind of uh, assumption is not going to end well for people. I sadly had people and a friend who watched that and tried to put gas in her car with her mind. Sounds funny. <laughs> Ended up in an institution. And another friend recently was trying to change her car into a Tesla because she fell so far down that rabbit hole that just believing in power of belief, which is kind of an offshoot of a cult or even religions. That and it's it seems more of a Western American and Western Europe phenomenon. Like you probably wouldn't find that in Thailand. Yeah, I think there's a little bit more ba balance in Asian cultures. We hope to find out. We you know we hope to continue our study on dreams uh, by looking at uh, and talking to people in some other cultures. But uh, I think there is more of a balance in most Asian cultures, and I would be surprised if we found the kind of blind optimism that we saw among our, our American subjects. How does that sort of cultural blind optimism, the can-do spirit that we have fly in the face of, say, the climate challenges and the climate breakdown that we're facing? And I talk to people, we've had the great scientists on, like Dr. Michael Mann, Catherine Hayhoe. But when I confront very intelligent people about, hey, if we don't do something, we, we're going to, might go extinct. They have, oh, we'll, we'll innovate our way out of it. They have this bizarre vague, obtuse optimism that's not connected to any reality. Well, you know, it may be very true that we innovate our way out of this, but we can't do that until people say, you know what, this is a problem. This isn't just going to go away. And in order to innovate our way out of it, we need to be finding funding. We need to be getting together teams of scientists. We need to be getting the general population to cooperate. We need to be getting big business to stop exacerbating the problem. There's a lot that goes into it. It isn't just going to get fixed. And that is the, the very danger of blind optimism that really has a stranglehold on American culture. Oh, brilliantly said. And what you're really outlying is, hey, if you want to make something happen, what's the game plan as opposed to a pipe dream? That's right. That somehow the asteroid will just magically miss, like in the movie, don't look up or we're going to, if we don't get the money soon, they're going to take the house. But I just, let's go buy a lottery ticket. You know, that's, there's differences as opposed to having real structural concerted plans that are achievable with goals and steps. Absolutely. And I think, you know, don't look up 
was not the hit that people anticipated it would be. And somehow that didn't surprise me. We, we almost stigmatize people who want to force us to think about worst case scenarios. You know, we talk about them as sad sacks and Debbie Downers. We don't want to be around them. And uh, unfortunately, that can have very bad repercussions. I love that movie. Even I watched it a couple of times and it's sad. But uh, every time they went on that morning talk show and they were trying to be cheerful, I was laughing because and then I have seen real life where they juxtapose the what happened in the movie to literally what was in Britain a couple of weeks ago when they're having the massive heat waves and the meteorologist said, Oh, this is, you know, climate change. And if we don't figure out literally the blonde host said, Oh, don't be Debbie downer. You guys, I used to love listening to weather, but now you're all doom and gloom. And he's like, I'm just giving you the facts. I'm a scientist. Oh, but can't you make it happy? I thought it was a, it looked like it was a spoof. but It was real. So- right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we talked about uh, uh, mobility and everything like that and the American dream and the deck being stacked is maybe a negative message, but like we're talking about the students or the kid from the Bronx, whatever. I feel like the deck is sort of stacked against people these days, the working family between income inequality, this crazy, we're one of the few countries that charges a fortune and at insane interest rates to get educated. We don't have universal health care. The the working family, the two-parent working family. My mom used to stay home until we got into elementary school and went and got a couple master's degrees at the community college, you know, and she got free ride because she was smart. A lot of that has gone away, and it feels like the blame has been transferred to the individual when the deck is truly stacked. And I can support that with statistics, but you're smart enough to know I'm telling the truth. Absolutely, you're telling the truth. And um you know, it's uh, interesting to note that um, the people in our, you know, we, we tried to get a, a large variety of people that we talked to in our study about dreaming of the future. You know, we had kids as young as seven and eight, people as old as 80. We had uh, people from racial, different racial backgrounds, white, black, Latinx, uh, Asian. Uh, we had people at different points in the the life cycle. Um, we had people of you know different genders. Um, we have people who are facing very difficult life events like uh, serious uh, diagnoses of cancer and so forth, or people who had been victims, lost their homes in natural disasters, or people who had been recently or unemployed for the long term. So we really tried to get a great variety. And one of the things that struck us is that People who embrace the deck is stacked, which you're right, is very much a reality, were the people in the lowest of classes, the lowest of economic classes, people who had been unemployed for a long period of time. And among our uh, racial groups, people who were from the Latinx group. Um, and, And they were the only people in our group who, while they still said, dreaming is so important, we're likely to tell us, I feel pretty sure that my dreams are never going to come true. I still dream, but I know realistically they are not going to come true. Whereas all of the other groups in our sample were almost uniformly sure that their dreams would come true. And uh, again, it's those people who are right now 
the victim of the changes in our society that uh, can't really hold on to that myth anymore. And isn't it interesting how important unemployment and employment and work was in terms of dreams and really self-esteem? It is very much the uh, American work ethic uh, that we see. Um, career is still the most popular dream. Now, granted, people don't generally dream about moving forward in the career they're in. They're thinking about something different. And often it's something, uh, as I said, that is attractive to them, though they know they might never do it. For example, being a star pitcher for the Yankees or um, uh, being Elon Musk, uh, you know, but um, some of the dreams um, were uh, certainly doable, very philanthrop philanthropic dreams, like becoming a doctor to cure diabetes because someone in a person's family had diabetes or um, starting a law firm that would um, help with social justice uh, issues. Um, and some people had very small dreams like, you know, wanting to have a little flower shop, have a little delicatessen. Um, but work was very important. We were, we were flabbergasted that out of our 272 uh, subjects, I believe we had one who said that they would want to win the lottery. And so we started asking people, have you ever not dreamed about that? And people said, you know, that's just something that drops into your lap. In my dreams, I've done something to get where I am. I either have a talent or a skill. And I think that's, again, very much, uh, you know, an American perspective. We want to earn what we get. And we might want to get a lot, but we want to think that we've done something to earn it. How does that square with the Kardashians? <laughs> well, you know, if you uh, talk to the Kardashians, they do think that they're working very hard. So I still try to figure out what it is they have done to get to where they are other than, but, uh, you know, other than be kind of goofy. <laughs> but but uh, I think they see themselves as very hardworking and very innovative and as great strategists. They somehow tapped into something. I was dragged in to watch about 15 minutes of a show once and it was they were sitting around texting each other complaining about the mom it was so hokey and then all of a sudden there'd be like a quick flash of like cool city scenes that had nothing to do with them and funky music and then they were back on the couch again talking and pouting and i, th I took it as a sign of the apocalypse coming but <laughs> we're uh, i guess more easily entertained these days or we see people with a lifestyle that we want to have, uh, or we see people that we love to hate. Reality shows give us a whole variety of reasons to watch. How has social media influenced the way we dream and aspire? You know, I think uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, on my own Facebook page, every once in a while, an ad will pop up for a yacht or an airplane. And I'm thinking, with all the data that's being collected on me, I think you know that a sociology professor can't afford a yacht. So what's that all about? Uh, but I think, you know, social media is putting images in front of us um, to get us to think very materialistically. Um, you know, we want people to say, well, maybe I could have that yacht or if not the yacht, maybe I could get a small boat. But uh, that's going to keep the economy flying uh, if we can just get people to keep spending money, even if it's on uh, hair color or weight loss or uh, deodorant or what it might, whatever it might be, if we can convince you 
that you can make improvements to yourself with a an expenditure of money, uh, then the economy is winning. And so are the, the corporations that are taking your money. How do you achieve your dreams? Uh, give us some strategies since you're figuring all this out. For all the people listening who have a dream, what are some good strategies that can help them get wherever they're going structurally? Well, you know, I think, first of all, ask yourself, why are you dreaming? Are you dreaming just to escape a bad day? Then, you know, go ahead. That's that's harmless and it's making you feel better. You're not really thinking you're going to achieve that dream. But are you dreaming because you're unhappy with what you're doing and you want to make a change in your life? Um, then you have to start making a plan. I mean, you have to start digging into what would it take to become a lounge sinker? What would it take to become president of the United States? What would it take to become someone who can travel around the world? Um, and you've got to start finding out what's required and how to plan for that and how much of that dream is really achievable. Maybe you can't travel around the world continuously, but you might be able to take three or four uh, trips to different countries. So you might have to think about how to scale uh, your dream. And then I think, you know, we work very hard, for example, at um, trying to bring people up to speed. So kids get into school. If we find out that their math skills are not up to par, we make them take remedial classes to kind of get them uh, up to the bar, so to speak. And I think we have to think about that kind of thing with dreaming. Not everybody knows how to dream. Not everybody knows what's realistic and what isn't. And uh, I'm beginning to see that even, even in grammar schools, um, there are lessons plans about giving people, in essence, remedial instruction about how to dream, what, to, what is realistic to dream about, why are you dreaming, if you have a realistic dream, what's doable. You know, we need to give that same remedial help to people that we would give in other areas, whether you're learning a sport, whether you're learning a subject, uh, whether you're learning a musical instrument. Um, we need to help people to achieve their dreams if their dreams are truly something that they want to accomplish and not something that just gives them pleasure or comfort. Do social democracies serve that purpose better than uh, hyper-corporate capitalism? Well, uh, I would like to uh, think that social democracies will serve that purpose uh, better because uh, a, a social democracy will be saying we want everyone to have a chance and not just those who are in the top one or five percent. Um, we would like to think that we help each other um, to uh, achieve one another's dreams as opposed to perhaps using people to achieve the dreams of a few. Are you personally optimistic about the trajectory of the human race given all its current challenges, climate change probably being one, and I would say in this country, the rise of fascism and authoritarianism banging at the gates? I have to say that uh, I'm not optimistic. Uh, I'm not totally pessimistic. But I think that we have some challenges ahead. We have the challenge of combating fake news. We have the challenge of getting people to have faith in science again. Uh, we have the challenge of getting people to uh, work together 
to not see themselves as isolates who don't have to be part of a community. I don't think those things are impossible to do, but they are challenges. And I think we have to recognize that we need to start uh, working on these issues. I love you really are a truth teller. You read your first, the other book about being overly optimistic. <laughs> I thought it'd be funny after that you wrote that great book that you were overly optimistic afterwards. <laughs> what would you tell young 12-year-old Karen if you could go back in the time machine with all this wisdom? Oh, gosh. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I was one of those kids who was very... Um, uh, you know, I was reading the World Book Encyclopedia for fun. So I think uh, I think um, I, I was uh, uh, fairly aware of the world around me and have been uh, certainly active since my high school and college and graduate school days in certain causes and so forth. And as a professor, I feel very blessed that I get to show students various sides of an argument and encourage them to think, to use their minds to think about which of those arguments make sense and which don't. Um, so I think I would have just told my 12-year-old uh, self to keep on keeping on. Can curiosity like that be developed? I've always was crazy curious, almost pain in the ass level curious. I, you know, I think, again, it takes work. I think you've got to find out the niche that someone's in and uh, start there with getting them to be more curious about things that they're already interested in and then start, you know, widening the scope. Well, I really thank you for coming on and just lighting it up here. This is just such a uh, fascinating topic. And are you guys going to do a follow-up and kind of get Europe involved and maybe other cultures? We're, we're thinking very seriously about doing that and looking at the possibilities of doing that. So hopefully Janet and I will, will have a follow-up. Do you love collaborating with her? It seems like you guys really enjoy each other. We do a lot of writing together and we do like working together. We have a good system um, when we when we work together and we've written a number of books and articles together. So, um, yeah, yeah, we are uh, good collaborators. You're obviously a scientist and very br bright, brilliant human being. Where does magic, mystery and the unknown fit in all of this in your personal life? Well, you know, we all have to take a step away from our work. And I think uh, it's um, it's good to think about what we don't know and what might be and to uh, speculate. And uh, there's nothing better than a good magic trick, that's for sure. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light. <laughs>